Oh, Christmas isn't just a day. It's a frame of mind. Merry Christmas, not better. Merry Christmas, Mr. Pitt. Too bad you have to work today. Oh, that's all right. Hello and Merry Christmas from Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hello and Merry Christmas, guys. Merry Christmas, Simon. Merry Christmas, Simon. So you can probably tell this is a special Christmas episode of the podcast. Uh, Later on in the show, we'll be playing some games based around Christmas films and also uh, finding out the best Christmas film ever made. Well, according to Vaughn anyway. So... um, (laughs) She is our Christmas expert after all, so whatever she says, that you can count that as gospel. Um, but before we get into that, uh, we're actually going to be discussing Vaughn's current research uh, for her PhD, which is around uh, classic Christmas films, I believe. So Vaughn, can you introduce what your PhD is on and why you chose to study it? Yes, I can. Um, I Oh, I probably should have looked at my own research for this one but um my the title of my thesis at the moment i believe is a very special cold war christmas um hollywood's reflection and refraction of political social and economic cultures in post-war america 1946 to 1961 so what i'm looking at from that mouthful of a title is um, it changes like every week, but generally the topic that I'm looking at is Christmas films from 1946 to 1961, um, including most of the classics that people would recognize, like It's a Wonderful Life from 1946, Miracle on 34th Street from 1947, um, White Christmas from 1954, and it ends with um, two films from the same week of 1961, being Disney's Babes in Toyland and Frank Capra's Pocket Full of Miracles, which no one's probably heard of the last one. But um, so in my research, I look at reflections and refractions of American society um, as portrayed through Christmas films. And I chose Christmas films because I wanted a quote unquote non-political media or an innocuous kind of media this innocent film category that people wouldn't really expect to find political subversion in and also because I love Christmas (laughs) and my supervisor was not stoked about this because he he wanted to not have to think about Christmas for four years straight Um, but I won that battle so that's what I'm doing um Within the cultural aspects of it, I'm looking at a few broad themes and then specific things within the films um, that are kind of tangential to those themes if they don't fit perfectly. So I'm looking at kind of areas of patriotism as as it's portrayed in the film um, as an agent of Americana and ways in which just small town or big city American life is portrayed in the post-war period through this kind of innocuous media as Christmas films. Um, And then I'm looking at other kind of like political things like anti-communism in the film and kind of perceptions of politics in the the post-war period. And I'm questioning why those things are in 
a Christmas film. Um, one thing that I'm sure we'll touch on later is in It's Wonderful Life. There's a whole war sequence of everybody in the town going off to World War II, but George Bailey stays behind because he has an ear injury and he's, he's deaf in one ear. Um, and the film makes a point to say that he is the actual hero of it because he saved his brother's life when his brother was a child and his brother went on to save um, a transport full of troops. So really the war hero is George Bailey, the main character. Um, and that has a lot of kind of political and patriotic ramifications for the audience watching it, um, who would have just come out of World War II and who would have had a lot of strong feelings about men who did or did not go to war. Uh, so looking at why that kind of thing is in a Christmas film is the main kind of crux of the patriotism and politics areas of my project. Then I'm also looking at the opposite of anti-communism being pro-capitalism, which actually I'm arguing isn't the opposite of anti-communism. So I shouldn't say that, <laughs> but <laughs> pro-capitalism in the films and how commerce, um, shopping, commercialism are all portrayed in the films. Um, we see a lot of media saying that we hate the commercialism of Christmas. Um, and how could it be this bad that Christmas starts in like September or August in my home? Um, how could it have gotten to this point? And a lot of that is to do with the cultural media that Hollywood puts out. Um, not solely, but a lot of it is this kind of line in the sand of what Hollywood is portraying as the archetypal American Christmas. And a lot of that happens in department stores like in Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, after that, I'm looking at gender dynamics and family values. That one's kind of straightforward. Just how are the films portraying gender and families at Christmas? Do they have different kind of roles at Christmas than they would any other time of year? And how is that impacted um, by the political stuff? Is masculinity portrayed in a certain way or is femininity portrayed in a certain way? And I'd argue definitely yes, um, or I am arguing definitely yes, as masculinity, for example, in It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart cries on screen. Mm. And he's, I do believe, the first man to cry on screen um, in Hollywood history. So wow. that that is an interesting pivoting point for gender in Hollywood. After that, I'm looking at nostalgia because yep. a PhD is 100,000 words, so I need a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> um, so I'm looking at nostalgia in the post-war period when a lot of people were feeling stressed. The atomic bomb was just dropped. People have been learning about the horrors of concentration camps, um, the extents of evil, quote unquote, that people are capable of. And there's a lot of pressure from 46 to arguably 89 um, with the looming quote unquote Cold War and the atomic threat uh, throughout this time period. So I'm not looking at the whole Cold War. I'm only looking at the first two phases of the Cold War, which is um, an idea 
popularized by a historian called Levi, that the first two phases kind of end right before 62, which in 62, we get the Cuban Missile Crisis and Bay of Pigs, and there's a real escalation in the kind of hot side of the Cold War. So I'm looking solely at the first two phases being 46 to 61. And that nostalgia under all of that pressure and that stress kind of harkens back to a 1930s America, which is really interesting because that's when the Great Depression was. And you wouldn't really expect people to be nostalgic about a period before World War II when there was so much camaraderie and American pride during World War II. So I'm looking at all of that and what role nostalgia plays in Christmas and what role Christmas plays in a nation's cultural nostalgia. After that, there are only two more, I promise. Um, there's a kind of lack of religiosity, which is really interesting because it's Christmas and that's yep. a religious holiday or so one would think. But America, Christmas in America has two kinds of identities. Um, I was reading something just yesterday, actually, that was talking about the, of course, traditional religious side of Christmas being the birth of Christ and a saint's day and all of, all of that stuff. Um, well, the saint's day is on St. Nicholas's day is uh, December 6th, but it's all kind of rolled into one for this religious ceremony on Christmas. And then there's also what is called um, the spectacle of secular mass consumption. And I think that lack of religiosity or that vacant religiosity using the front of religion to push a commercial and secular identity for the holiday is really important to how Americans interact with Christmas. Um, I, for one, as I've said a thousand times already just this episode, I love Christmas so much, um, so much so that I dedicated four years of my life to studying it, but I was raised without religion and I am not, I wouldn't say that I'm a religious person, perhaps some kind of spirituality, but that's a different episode. And I think it's fascinating that someone who grew up without religion in any sense could be so taken with a holiday that they don't have any personal kind of stake in. So that's also kind of a, an, um, an underlying factor as to why I'm studying this. And I think it is, it's something that I'm still researching, but it's some, I, I think that it's something that is very indicative of American culture in the way this secular Christmas has developed and is marketed and is so integral to American culture um, for a day, a week, a month, a couple months of the year. And I've just really been taken with the whole idea of it. And the last one is Disneyfication. In 1961, Disney released Babes in Toyland, which is a remake from a 1933 Laurel and Hardy film which also leads back to the kind of nostalgia questions and really begs the question, why is Disney's first Christmas film released live action in 1961 and a remake of something that was already success successful if Disney is known for their original content? 
And why did they cash out on Christmas at the end of this kind of decade where we see so many Christmas films coming out? That I think is particularly important when you think about the fact that Christmas films as a genre wasn't really a term until the 70s or 80s um, when, when Hollywood and B-list filmmakers like the Hallmark Channel and Lifetime and them, uh, when they realized that they could cash out on this and that they could make formulaic films that people will watch endlessly with a rolling cast of like six different actors and the exact same plot just in different places with different music. I'm not condemning those because I watch them every year. I've watched like 10 so far this month. They're fantastic. But it really begs the question, how were there so many Christmas films in this decade or long decade? I think it's 15 years that I'm studying. Um, how were there so many Christmas films if Christmas films wasn't a genre until a few decades later? So that's the last kind of theme that I'm looking at. Um, the larger, wider macro concept is looking at how Hollywood can inject a certain archetypal American identity into a quote unquote innocuous film. Something that's not supposed to be political suddenly becomes political because it is portraying American life and American culture in a certain way. And I argue that non-political media doesn't exist because any decision in portraying a culture or a person or someone with an identity that is labeled through a nation or national iconography is inherently political. And that I think is a very important question to be asking being how is Hollywood doing this? How are they injecting these innocuous films with a political message? And what is that political message um, for today with all of these questions around fake news and subversion, um, kind of using media as a political weapon in the modern day and I think, and I hope that my dissertation can kind of elicit some kind of reaction or explanation for how this is being done so we can try and combat um, certain types of ideological drains of thought and politics influencing our quote unquote, non-political media. How was that? That was very impressive. That was Thank fantastic. You. I just wanted to ask um, what sort of attracted you to this particular era of fil filmmaking and, um, mm. and its implications for the American archetypes? Mm, that's a good question. Um, so originally what I had wanted to do was look at escapism and entertainment. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't really know what I wanted to look at specifically, but I was thinking post-war because my master's thesis I had written on post-war New York um, and a comic book. And I was very interested in the post-war period after that thesis, um, looking just at gender dynamics in 1948 
So I was thinking more around spatial theory and amusement parks as places of kind of Foucauldian heterotopic um, escapism. Finally, he makes it onto our podcast. <laughs> Finally, yes. Um, been avoiding it, but I was I was going to go down the rabbit hole of Foucault, and my supervisor was like, "Hell no, we're not doing that." Um, he yelled at me out of his office one day. Uh, never read the French. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so originally I wanted to do escapism in entertainment in the post-war period, and it wasn't a very structured. Um, proposal so my supervisor sat down with me and he was like listen I want to work with you for your PhD but this is a terrible proposal and I was like nice noted um, <laughs> and then he he just he sat there and talked to me for an hour and 45 minutes about what I was actually interested in and what I wanted to dedicate four years of my life to and I wrote down a few topics and went away and thought about them um a bit deeper and I landed on Christmas films in this period for all of the reasons I just said but largely because there's this there's this book by Elaine Tyler May called Homeward Bound um, the Cold War Families and I read it my during during my undergrad um, my senior year I also started a grad program and then I transferred out of that and went to a different grad program at the end of the year. So in my first grad class during my senior year of undergrad, um, we read this book by Elaine Tyler May and it has just been in the back of my mind or it had just been in the back of my mind for three years at that point. Um, because it's just this, this really brilliant kind of Re-examination, I say re-examination, I think it was written in 82, and then there are a few uh, newer editions of it. But it was this re-examination -exa re of Cold War families and the pressures that were put on them during the Cold War in a way that I had never really read it before. It was, it was talking about the kind of crisis of experts and how everybody was turning inwards to their families because you couldn't trust anyone else. And there was so much subversion or threats of subversion. Um, people were fearing that their neighbors were communists and that they'd get wrapped up into that and then they'd be in political trouble. And there was this threat ever looming of a nuclear holocaust. And that's something that we really can't, or at least I really can't grasp that kind of anxiety. I mean, we can get to it a little bit with the pandemic now, but this threat of nuclear annihilation every single day is something that I can't really conceive of. And the way Elaine Tyler May writes about it and rationalizes things that people were feeling at the time was just so captivating to me. And it's now the um, foundation for my chapters on gender dynamics and family values. So that was kind of just already in the back of my mind and largely um, impacting why I wanted to look at escapism in the post-war period. So I got to bring that into this one. And yeah, it all just kind of fell into place with, with Christmas films and how all of this is portrayed because there are like little throwaway lines in these films of like, oh, how's the weather today? And he's like, it's warmer than last year. 
And the other guy's like, oh yeah, I hear that's because of the atomic bomb. And that's just a total <laughs> like small talk conversation in one of these Christmas films. And you're like, why did that happen? Yep. So it's just this kind of fascinating little snow globe to look into, um, theme intended. But like a little snow globe of, of what life was like in the late 40s, 50s, and early 60s. So I don't know where we want to kind of start as far as the different sections that you, you kind of split your um, your thesis into. Um, we're probably not going to get through 100,000 words. Uh, well, I haven't written them yet. So. Yes. So, um, yeah, we're probably not going to get through that in the, in the space of an episode. But I, I, I guess, should we start uh, on the sort of patriotism side of things? I or we can kind of start elsewhere. Yeah. I, I was just wanting to maybe try and get a crystallization of this time period and how we can kind of best reflect, because, you know, it, it's easy to kind of look back on old films and go, oh, they're kind of, you know, they st- sell a, a certain story or they're, you know, they're a bit cheesy or they're a bit, you know, kind of antiquated or whatever. But obviously what you're sh- showing through your research is that there are, you know, deeper themes within this mm-hmm. and there are deeper social reflections that, you might not get if you just watched it as a child or you know didn't really think yeah. about it in any in any great uh, great manner what do you think or is it is maybe it's too hard a question is is there a defining way to look at some of this stuff as far as the themes that most jump out off this time period a defining way in what do you mean by defining way so when you look at the, the films that you you said mm-hmm. i think over the course of 15 years yeah is is there certain i know you mentioned some of the themes but out of those what 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 do you think are the most prominent or the ones that strike you the most when you watch mm. the films you know is is it the the patriotism is it the anti-communism is right. it this idea of pro-capitalism is it the nostalgia or the family values i was just wondering what do you think is the most prominent right okay so i have a few particular favorites um that i keep returning to in my own research and in my writing um, for each of the kind of themes, I'm looking at 11 films over this 15 year period, and each of the themes go through different iterations in certain time periods. And they're kind of blocked off by like 1946 um, is immediate post-war. And it has a very different feel from 1947 because 1947 is when the blacklist started. Mm-hmm. And it's when Hollywood started really investigating um, suspected communism within Hollywood. They invited HUAC, um, the House Committee on, on American Activities, into Hollywood to start rooting out these alleged communists or people who were part of the Communist Party in the 30s and early 40s, but who had since renounced. Um, so there's a marked shift in the film's after It's a Wonderful Life, which I think they're for from 1947. So that's a good kind of case study to be able to look at what has changed in this one year period when there are so many changes within Hollywood itself and the pressures on these films to be purporting a specific kind of archetypal theme. Um, after that, for a lot of the films, they, they still follow these kind of categories of like 1946 is immediate post-war and then 1947 to about 1952 is this rampant McCarthyism. Um, 1953 to 1955 
you get themes of militarism and sentimental militarism um, as Christian Appy, who's a historian um, on Cold War culture, terms it, um, which we can talk more about that because that's one of my favorite themes. So that's 1954 uh, to 1953 to 1955. And then after that, it's really interesting what's, what happens to each of these themes because they kind of disperse. There's a very different feel to the films of 1961, where one being Disney's Babes in Toyland is very successful. And if you look at their press book materials, um, the ways they, they publicized to the film, how it was marketed, all of that stuff. It is very militant in its direction, which is kind of thematic with the film because there's this march of toy soldiers um, in quotes. So all of their press book materials are very militant to go with that theme, but that's an interesting choice um, to make your publicity all about the militaristic side of the film that only really encapsulates about five minutes of the film in the last five minutes. Um, so I'm looking at that in terms of the sentimental militarism. So, so have you come to any conclusions why it, it, it is so militaristic as far as why that was so prominent in the marketing of the film? Yeah, yeah. So I have a couple ideas about that. Um, I'll start with sentimental militarism and then we can get into, into Disneyfication because I think sentimental militarism needs to come first in this conversation. Um, so sentimental militarism is this idea of soldiers and ex-military men in 1954 feeling out of place in the modern Cold War quote-unquote Cold War, because they are accustomed to a quote-unquote hot war, war being like battlefield um, live action during World War, World war II. And this new military that was very prominent during the Korean War, being from late 50 to 53, is that right? <laughs> late 50 to 53 um the military in the korean war was much more of a kind of covert operations military and there wasn't really place for there there wasn't much of a place for this reverence of the manly masculine military that fought in world war ii and a lot of veterans were feeling very left out of the conversation and felt that the military was going in a in a bad direction that was lacking morals and decency by being so stealthy and <laughs> having such covert operations. Um, <laughs> it is it is rather funny actually. Um, so sentimental militarism in the Christmas films has been explored by Christian Appy and I'm taking it a bit further. Um, he looks at White Christmas and identifies this kind of sentimental militarism, this nostalgia for World War II within the film. And if you're familiar with the film, um, 
or if you're not familiar, I'll take you through it very quickly. It's one of my favorites. I've seen this film a million times. And when I was a kid, it's funny that you said that, Simon, because I watched this every single year at the first snowfall with my mom. Mm-hmm. And I never picked up on some of these, some of the militarism in yeah. the film. It's the plot is about the military. It starts in World War II. Bing Crosby is singing White Christmas on a stage um, to his fellow soldiers on Christmas Eve of 42 in, I think, Berlin or something. So somewhere, I don't know, it's World War II. They're, they're somewhere in Europe. Um, and he sings White Christmas and then it jumps a few years later and he and one of his army buddies are now um, a stage act together. They meet these two women and then follow them to Vermont, um, which is only mildly creepy in today's standards. <laughs> and, Who uh, hasn't they, followed a woman to Vermont? They, they go to stay uh, in this little inn uh, for Christmas. And when they get there, they find that the innkeeper is their old general from World War II. And he's doing pretty poorly. Uh, There's no snow in Vermont. um, So there are no tourists and there's no one staying at the inn and he's hemorrhaging money. And the women were supposed to be the stage act there. And they say that they'll stay and and sing for free regardless. Um, There's this whole kind of moral valor of the general who says, I hired you, I'm gonna pay you whatever, and Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye decide to bring their whole million dollar show up to Vermont to cheer up the general, essentially. Um, they're, they're doing it to bring kind of tourists and revenue in, but the main goal is to bring this kind of respect back to the general. And there are multiple songs in the film Um, It is a musical. Uh, There are multiple songs about life in the army and respecting generals and how there's no place for generals in the world anymore. Um, How we need to bring this respect back for the older generation who fought in the war. And at one point, the general who is very obviously a a stand-in for Eisenhower. Mm Mm-hmm. He reapplies to, or he applies to re-enter the, the military, and he's laughed out of the room because of this, uh, because he's so old, and there's no place for him in the new modernized army. And it, mm. all the guys at, at base got a good laugh out of old Tom's letter, and he he feels so dejected and isolated from the military of 1954. And the film ends with a few more numbers about how great the military was, um, specifically was and not is anymore. Hmm. And it ends with a slam bang finish, as they say, a rendition of, again, we'll follow the general, or we'll, we'll follow the old man, um, which is a song that they sing to him upon his departure at the beginning of the does, film. Does, and this, just, um, uh, does this follow the, the MacArthur thing, that, that when MacArthur was running the Korean War, he wanted to go further into China, but he had a problem with, with Truman who didn't want to who didn't want to fight the war like that? I, I, 
I think it was something. Like that. Hmm. I don't know, but I'm going to write it down. That's, I don't that's know that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that there was this whole thing coming out of World War Two. There were people who were more militaristic, who who felt that the loss of China was this great um, failure by the American Americans, but the the sort of the liberals like uh, Truman, and then later on they weren't as um, interested in in actually fighting these kind of hot wars, they 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 wanted to pursue much more, you know, um, covert ops and um, have um, just contain communism instead of actually attacking it. Which I think MacArthur was was an advocate for the for the other side of that. Hmm. I I don't know much about that, um, but I will look into that because I haven't written this chapter yet, actually. It's just one of my favorite areas to think about um, and think around. So I haven't done my Korean War homework as thoroughly as I should have, but- You've still got years. No, that's, oh, <laughs> um, not, not that many. My two year anniversary is in a couple of weeks, which is stressful. But- yeah, It's interesting with Eisenhower, like Eisenhower was obviously mm. a general, but he, he made that, um, that military industrial um, speech, and he warning the American yeah. people about the, the the military. And I guess there was much more people who were much more um, diehards, like uh, MacArthur, were I think on the other side of that. And I think some people thought that MacArthur was going to become president, but that yeah. might have made the country into more of a, a sort of authoritarian or or it's a country that loved the military. As opposed to the country that they were putting together, so and I get that right. might feed. I don't know. I bet it might feed into it because it's it's almost like the old generals. They're loved by a certain group of people, but they're they're too old for this new world that we're putting together, mm. which might be a little bit immoral. You know, Eisenhower's um, working with Dallas Brothers, and they're sending um, old uh, former Nazis into different countries covertly and then no one's fighting uh, <laughs> you know man to man anymore yeah i think i think that might i don't know hmm. no i'll definitely look into that i know that macarthur was definitely um kind of a fan favorite for running for president um in a lot of the gallup polls that i've looked at from uh the early 50s a lot of people really wanted macarthur to run for president and would have voted for him at least said so in the gallup polls um, for years. And I, I don't remember which historian off the top of my head said this, but one historian who theorized that General Waverly in White Christmas was this kind of stand-in for Eisenhower um, or this Eisenhower-esque character. He said that this was part of the kind of election campaign for him. Um, oh, wow. That the film added to public persona or public... Uh, public opinion about Eisenhower mm -hmm. in his bid for presidency and in kind of legitimizing his presidency after the fact. Oh, that, that is interesting because yeah. Eisenhower didn't really become a very um, strong military president. He was, mm -hmm. he sort of managed the Cold War according to the, the Truman Doctrine in many ways, but he was quite disliked by a lot of military hardliners 
I mean, you get a lot of that with the John Birch Society and other parts of the conservative conservative movement. But it's interesting to think, like in that early fifties periods, people would have wanted the general for a more expansive uh, hot war than the war that they got and the war mm-hmm. that Eisenhower managed. And I think that that period is really it's really it's really interesting. I mean, I I I especially because at the end of the 40s uh, America's really different from how it is into the mid 50s isn't it because mm-hmm. it's like the, the economy is really bad mm-hmm. you got a lot of former soldiers with nothing to do it's like a yeah. totally different world and there's so many different issues that people have to deal with that they don't necessarily have to deal with into the mid 50s and that must come, come across in, in the films as well Yeah, no, definitely. So that's something that leads up to the sentimental militarism in 54 in White Christmas, is that in 1947 films, there's a lot of emphasis on homeless GIs and um, soldiers who can't get back on their feet after World War II, Um, how veterans were kind of left by the wayside and they're being evicted from their homes on Christmas and all of these kind of ideas that you wouldn't really expect in a Christmas film, um, at least in our modern conception of a Christmas film. And it just, I, I can see a kind of trajectory from 46, It's a Wonderful Life with George Bailey, as I said earlier, being the kind of war hero without ever going to war. And then 47, multiple films looking at homeless veterans and how the government is doing nothing to help them with very clear in, um, it happened on Fifth Avenue from 47 the Roy DeLuth film. Um, he said, uh, the, the main veteran who is being evicted from his home so the millionaire can buy the property and turn it into luxury condos or something. Um, he cites this legislature and says, you can't evict me on section 46 of article two or something like that. And the police officer is like, that are that section doesn't exist. That's not a law. And he's like, well, it ought to be. And it's a, that is a very clear kind of demand for legislation to be helping homeless veterans in a Christmas film. Um, so it's, it's just fascinating what is actually in these films if you really look closely. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so that's a lot of the, the sentimental militarism in White Christmas. Um, and that kind of militarism leads into 61 with Babes in Toyland. And again, there are a couple things at play here, it being Disney and the Disney effect. But to bring it back a little bit, in 1947, no, in 1948, rather, the Supreme Court passed the Paramount Consent Decrees, which made vertical integration essentially legal within Hollywood, meaning that Hollywood studios could not own their production and distribution rights uh, or modes. So a studio producing a film could not own the cinemas in which those films were being shown. There's a lot of political ramifications for that um, and reasoning for that, mainly being that it was driving up a monopoly that the wealthiest five, the big five studios all owned their own cinemas. So no independent artists or independent cinemas 
could afford the, the big name films or afford to get into big name cinemas. And it was creating a monopoly of a cultural market. In 1950, because Disney could no longer own their modes of distribution, they needed a new cash cow on how to profit off of their, before the term really existed, intellectual property. So Disney started construction on Disneyland. And in 1955, Disneyland opened and there was a TV series about Disneyland as a like 30 or 30 minute or like 60 minute um, ad advertisement with a loose plot every week. Uh, telling kids to ask their parents to take them to Disneyland. That went off the air in the late 50s. And in 1961, Disney made the film Babes in Toyland, which, as I said earlier, is based on, and the title is taken from, a Laurel and Hardy film from 1933. But Disney's Babes in Toyland is incredibly different from that film. Like very, very loosely are these films related. Mm -hmm. um, the plot loosely follows the same track, but the biggest difference is that Babes in Toyland 1961 is a feature-length film advertisement for Disneyland. The whole of Toyland is just Disneyland. Um, and they decided, they decided that this was the time to make this film because they could mask it under Christmas and say that this joyous Toyland is like, oh, it's because Santa, even though Santa is only name checked in the film, he's not actually in the film at all. <laughs> and that's their whole justification for it being at Christmas is that they can get away with this advertisement, um, feature length advertisement. And in the Laurel and Hardy film, Christmas or, uh, Santa is a character and a big part of the actual plot of the film. Do you think he was removed purely because he would get in the way of what they're selling then? He, like he's too big a character? Or do you think there were other reasons why they just removed that character altogether? That's a really good question. Um, do you think he'd sort of suck up the oxygen in the room if the kids are paying attention to Santa rather than this uh, this advertisement on uh, Disneyland as it were? Yeah, I think probably. We'll leave that one with you to ponder if you wish one. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting question that I've only loosely considered because... I've noted that he's not in that film. And the person who is the kind of stand-in for Santa is this toy maker mm. um, who alludes to Santa that he has to make toys for Santa. Interesting. And instead of having elves, he hires the children who happen to get trapped in his toy <laughs> workshop. Um, he like hires them. Exactly. He hires them and they sing a song about how much they love working and how they don't want to take breaks or go to bed. They just want to <laughs> stay on the factory, factory line. And I think that the absence of Santa is because the film is actually kind of purporting a very capitalist hmm. um, work ethic and okaying child labor. <laughs> um, it's, it's a bizarre, bizarre film. And I think the presence of Santa would alter the commercialism of the film. Mm, interesting. So that the Disney effect is so weird on that film because you can tell that they were just kind of throwing something together. 
to be a feature-length advertisement and that they worked way harder on the scenery than the actual plot or the songs in it because my god strap in for these songs one is called i can't do the sum (laughs) this song is about mary the main teenage girl character who was supposed to be marrying tom but barnaby the the villain of the town who owns most of the town except for mary's house uh and property he kidnaps tom and sends him away and proposes marriage to Mary using a song called Castle in Spain that is a forced rhyming scheme of him explaining the tax benefits of her marrying him and uh, how he'll drive up the prices of all everybody else's mortgages so that they can live like they're in a castle in Spain. Um, and castle in Spain was a phrase that was used in the original 1933 version by her fiance Tom Um, saying like, oh, we'll have this lovely life. We'll live in a castle in Spain. So the 61 version where the villain is using that as his marriage proposal is kind of like they heard about what, like they loosely heard about the plot of the 33 one, like through a wall. And then they they threw whatever this is together. Um, And he's a a very sassy character. Roy Bolger plays him, or Ray Bolger. Um, And he's like singing and dancing and kicking in a fountain. It's bizarre. Um, Love it though. It's fantastic. So Mary then goes home and she's like, I can't marry that guy. It's never going to work. And she sings this song. I can't do the song. This song is about how figuring out how to buy groceries for all of the kids that she has in her home, but they're not her children. And you don't really know who, where these kids came from. Um, but it's just kind of accepted that they live in her home and she has to buy groceries for them. She's saying she can't figure out how to pay for groceries and she can't do the maths to figure out her rent. And life is just so hard because she can't do math. So why doesn't she just marry the villain? We've all been there. Exactly. She can't do the sum, but that guy clearly can because he knows the tax breaks. So she has to go marry Barnaby and then Tom shows up in a pretty racist scene um (laughs) it's that's also bizarre um he comes back as a fortune teller and does a whole dance number in very sketchy 1960s ideas of traveling fortune tellers he sings the song and then reveals himself and then the kids run away for some reason, which is like a different plot that's happening. It feels like a different film. Um, and then they all end up in the toy maker's house and the kids sing the song about child labor and loving it. And then Mary's like lo- like playing with the dolls that they're making and, and packaging them for kids. And Tom starts singing this song about how she's just his doll for him to play with. And that's all she'll ever be is his toy. And then the film like ends and it's just, it's a bizarre ride the entire time. And only the villains speak in a rhyming scheme for some reason. Everybody else speaks normally. Rhyming scheme is pretty evil though, isn't it? Oh yeah. Like if you saw someone like twiddling their mustache and speaking in rhyme, she'd be like, yeah. He does have like a twiddly mustache. 
that's his whole look. He has like the top hat and like the evil cape and the little mustache. That is iconic for Ray Bulger's Barnaby. So grief-stricken and remorseful. Oh, to see you thus is more than I can bear. Erase your sorrow now. Be resourceful for yourself and those poor children in your care. Oh. Take advantage, my dear, of my infatuation. May I point out you are deeply in my debt? I could seize your home through legal confiscation. Oh, I do hope you don't take that as a threat. I mean, just he just sounds evil, doesn't he? Yeah. Just the very, the very sort of the anti-Santa, as it were. Exactly. Beards Except. are wholesome. Mustaches are evil. <laughs> that's that's what we're learning. Exactly. <laughs> and Vaughn, I just wanted to ask. Yeah. Just um, going back to the Disneyfication um points that you, you've been making what do you think and since seen through the movies that you've seen what do you think disney's effect was on american cultural life or was it just a reflection of american cultural life so, through, through through these movies okay so that that is an excellent question because in all of the other films um they're set in this kind of fictional America. And it's kind of clear that it is an American story. But this one is set in Toyland, which is not supposed to be American, right? But within it, you can still see a lot of gender roles from the 60s and arguments for um, child labor and stuff and economics in certain ways. But the main Disney effect is making it about Disney and not about Christmas or American society or any of these other kinds of things. Um, and I think the Disney effect, the Disneyfication, if you will, is um, tapping into why these other Christmas films worked. What, Sorry, guys. Anders. Anders. Have we been joined by a friend of yours, Vaughn? Yeah. Anders, get out. My suitcase and ripping things apart. Anders, get out. So is Anders uh, an ex-boyfriend or something, Vaughn? Do you want to introduce who Anders is? <laughs> do, you, do you just carry men around in suitcases? Is that what yes, we're doing? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, no, Anders is a cat, a very handsome cat. That who is sense. now just staring at me like he's done nothing wrong. Okay. Yeah, he's calmed down though. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think he's he's good just sitting there. Did he have thoughts on uh, Disney or do you want to continue yourself? Um, he says that Disney is an evil monopolizing company. <laughs> and that... Um, oh, he just meowed when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't like Disney. Um. I think the Disney effect is tapping into why these other Christmas films worked, uh, what made them successful, and why people wanted to spend a lot of money at the box office to see them. Mm -hmm. And they kind of studied these films because there are aspects of all of the other films in this one, um, in Babes in Toyland, but with this Disney sheen on it. And I, I think it's kind of a remarkable 
thing in the press materials as i was saying earlier it's very militant in the, in the writing and action of how to publicize this film and it's broken down into categories of young children um like zero to four and then so i guess like toddlers and then young children being like four to nine and then preteens 10 to 14 young adults 14 to 18 and then adults um, 18 and beyond. And Disney had different plans for how to target each of these audiences with different aspects of the film and what mm. to promote for which demographics and where, in what shops, in what toys. And it's just, that's the Disney effect is just capitalizing to the absolute extreme on this film. Um, while kind of perfecting the Christmas image without ever commenting really on Christmas, apart from saying Santa needs these toys. It's it's like a marvel to, to watch this film and just see how Disney did this with, like the film has pretty much zero plot. It's stupid, it's not entertaining. The villains are annoying. It's, the songs are, super anti-feminist even for 61 <laughs> like it's it's a spectacle in itself but the fact that it was so successful it could only be disney and i think that's the disney effect um i was just gonna remove a little bit from the disney side of it and maybe just look about the, the sort of period in general how do you mm-hmm. think it compares to something like you know the media that came before such as a, a, a christmas carol something like that is kind of kind of highlights the duality of, of Christmas which is kind of both you know pro-family and then at the same time you have um you know kindness etc and then you have the Scrooge character who's kind of you know mean and is this sort of capitalist scourge but obviously Christmas itself is very capitalist and has kind of grown together now that Christmas is, is as much about giving presents as it is about who you give those presents to I was wondering is there how do the how does the time period that you're studying now compare to how Christmas was viewed before that in media? So that's a good question. Um, in media, I'm going to lump in literature. Sure. Yeah. Um, largely being a Christmas Carol, and uh, is it Charles Moore? Is that that guy's name? Charles Moore's. Um, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Of course. The, the book from 1832. Those were the two most iconic kind of representations of Christmas in the literary world, at least at the time. Sorry, was it Clement um, Moore? Was that Clement name? Moore, thank you. I knew Charles wasn't right, <laughs> but I didn't know what it was. <laughs> Clement Moore. Um, it's before my time period. I don't have to know his first name. I just know <laughs> his name's Moore. Um, they were the kind of like literary de- uh, depictions of Christmas mm-hmm. at the time. So in media, we get a wide departure from the messages of Moore and Dickens. Um, I think it's really noteworthy that in this 15 year period, there is not a remake of A Christmas Carol. There's It's a Wonderful Life, which is a very American reimagining sure. of a Christmas Carol with the focus on the Cratchit character being George Bailey. 
Um, and the Scrooge character never has a redemption arc in It's a Wonderful Life, mm. which I argue in other places. That film is a condemnation of the kind of capitalism that um, a Scrooge character really embodies. That big business capitalism is not, a there. there is no place for big business capitalism in Americana. There's only this type of small town local capitalism that is aimed at making your small town and then your local city and then wider your country a better place. And it all starts with a small town and not buying into big businesses. So that's a wide departure from the earlier depictions of Christmas. Now, outside of media, Christmas had started to become a commercial experience around the 1880s. And by that, I mean, department stores started having store Santa Clauses in 1890. And they started having really elaborate window displays um, around the 1870s and 1880s in department stores. And all of these have built up, had built up over time to the point of uh, 1946. to be a massive spectacle and something that people traveled to go see. The the Macy's department store um, Christmas displays are still one of the most iconic and famous worldwide at this point. So a lot of that is due to the turn of the century and early 20th century um, depictions in department stores and their advertising materials um, and companies getting on this bandwagon. The image of Santa that we have is largely due to Coca-Cola and their original depiction of Santa Claus with a bit of Clement Moore's kind of rosy cheek Santa um, influencing it. But the iconography is largely because of Coca-Cola's advertising materials. So the idea of the Christmas that's being portrayed in the films wasn't completely new to the films. Yeah. It was still kind of in the popular imagining of Christmas. And that, um, there's a historian, the surname Restad, I think Mary Restad, uh, who writes about Christmas in America and how every kind of local community had their own Christmas traditions that probably came from um, where they emigrated from, what kind of family traditions they brought with them to America. And we didn't have a kind of cohesive American identity for Christmas until really around 1920 and then more solidly in 1946 um, with the start of these kind of representations of streamlining what an American Christmas looks like in Hollywood media. So the iconography of what an American Christmas is really comes from a melding of cultures and then Hollywood putting a rubber stamp on what Christmas should look like, what the archetypal Christmas should look like for Americans that the widest audience would be able to recognize and be like, oh, look, that's Christmas when watching the films. And do you think that rubber stamp has sort of stayed on how America and indeed the Western world sees Christmas and Christmas media? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I 
yesterday I hosted a seminar um, on elf exploitation in Santa's workshop and uh, Santa's surveillance systems of his list that he checks twice. And we talked about this um, kind of directly that the American Christmas is one of the most identifiable holidays worldwide, even if you don't celebrate it that way yourself, especially because the song White Christmas has been top of the charts or was top of the charts for like decades. Um, it's, I think it's the most downloaded song of all time or something is Bing Crosby's White Christmas when only like half of the US actually has a white Christmas. Yep. And that's kind of bizarre that like one half the world doesn't have a white Christmas because the Southern hemisphere is in summer over yep. December. And then half of the US who started this whole tradition don't get snow, but that's the iconic Christmas. And everybody just like people in Texas sing white Christmas. It's, yeah, it's I think there's a there's a Christmas in like uh, don't quote me, but like a Crocodile Dundee movie or something. And it's like Australia oh, and it's Christmas. I'm gonna look into like, that. I, I'm not completely sure this is a fact, but there's like is Australia even a country if it doesn't have a Christmas? <laughs> you know, like a white Christmas. It's like this is not a a thing. How how are they doing this? It's there's no. <laughs> It's supposed to be winter. The how's it Christmas? Yeah, I, Christmas I just, it's always my my intuitive uh, reaction to to that. To that. I, I think the main takeaway I'm going to take from this episode is to be questioning the legitimacy of Australia. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> yeah, I'm very very glad that we managed to get that. No, that that's thing. a great quote. <laughs> now people people know I, I have a history of uh, questioning the legitimacy of Australia. So. It is. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Impressions of America and judgments of Australia. Yes. Um, right. Um, is there anything more you want to touch on that Vaughn before we we hear of whatever other um, countries Toby doesn't have a high opinion of? I I just want want to get into the the religion side. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. I don't know if we've yeah. um, we should, we should talk about that. Yeah, I mean, do you... Christmas being a, the holiday uh, based on the the birth of, of Christ mm-hmm. um, and I, I suppose that that holiday um, many different iterations of it are celebrated um, many different Christian or normally Christian countries as a festival and feast day and things like that um, how much do you think the religion is filtered into Christmas films and into um, the American Christmas experience generally? Mm. Um, so these films directly, not much. Um, in It's a Wonderful Life, there's an angel being Clarence who comes down and takes George through the alternate kind of Pottersville sequence of what life would have been like without him um, if he had never been born that whole kind of classic scene. Um, And there's a lot of talk around angels that anytime a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. But there's no kind of engagement with like God or Jesus or religion. There's just this iconography 
that legitimates it as a Christmas film, in my view. Um, and then in 47, there's another film called The Bishop's Wife, which has been re remade a few times. Um, I think in the 90s, it was called The Preacher's Wife. Um, I think Samuel Jackson is in that. Oh, okay. I think. But The Bishop's Wife from 47. I'm kind of happy you asked this because I wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know when to bring it up. So... The film is about a bishop and his wife, and the bishop has been courting rich people all year to beg them for money for a big grand cathedral. And he says that it's what the town needs to bring religiosity back to the, the people, get people reinvigorated in like the mission of Christ in his, in his town. But his wife is much more connected with the townspeople. And she goes to their local church where he used to be um, the priest before he was promoted to bishop. I don't know how those things work. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's not worry too much about the, the technicalities. Yeah, he was in charge of the church. Um, <laughs> and then he left to go build this cathedral that he's begging for money for. And his wife, um, she's sad and, and kind of dejected from her husband, but she keeps her spirits. And then Cary Grant comes down as a sexy angel and seduces her in this Christmas film. Wow. And I know, right? It's fantastic. <laughs> and David Niven, who is the um, bishop, he gets really jealous that Cary Grant, this sexy Cary Grant, is spending all of this time with his wife and taking her ice skating and buying her presents. <laughs> and he's supposed to be helping him get money for this cathedral so why is this happening and at the end carrie grant's like pretty much like i could have had sex with your wife but i didn't because i respect you and it's fantastic <laughs> it's, so good. What? it's one of my favorite films um because it just takes all of these left turns and that's the most religious one of all of my films <laughs> wow the religion does not play a huge role in these films even though that one's directly about a church and cathedral and a bishop and ultimately they kind of um, have this conversation about like what what really matters at Christmas is the people whom you love and all of this. And Cary Grant also seduces this like miserly old woman who is a millionaireess and gets her to donate all of the money. Um, that's actually such a great scene. He is he like an evil angel or what is no this? no he's he's very good um, and very good looking and. This, this old miserly woman who he's trying to get money from, he like plays this song that her ex, that, that her like former boyfriend wrote for her. And he was a music composer and she knew that he would always be poor. And she says that she was afraid of being poor. So she married a millionaire, um, even though she never loved him. She always loved the poor artist and that moves her Cary Grant playing this song for her that she hasn't heard since her her boyfriend decades before um, that moves her to donate the money for the cathedral and ultimately uh, David Niven decides that the money shouldn't go to the cathedral it should go towards renovating the church and bringing back this small town kind of religious experience um, bring people together help the people in town who actually need the money and not just put it towards this 
very kind of self-aggrandizing mm-hmm. cathedral. Um, and that's as religious as the film gets. It's about a sexy angel who seduces two women into bringing Christmas to a whole town. That doesn't sound any better than like the devil's advocate or something. Like that. <laughs> Why are they making these Satan movies as a as a, for for Christmas? I don't know. I mean, it's just I just don't understand because America is one of the most religious countries. Uh, in the Western world, right? Mm. So why why haven't they been able to to make the compromise between the religiosity and then the commercial side in in the Christmas films? Mm. I think I think they're seen as competing because, like like in It's a Wonderful Life, for example. Well, no, actually, I don't know. I don't think I really have an answer for that directly right now. I, I do think my gut reaction is that they're competing thoughts and they're competing identities being the mm-hmm. religious side of Christmas and then the, um, the as I quoted earlier, the, the spectacle of secular mass consumption. I don't think you really think about Jesus when you're swiping your credit card, you know? It is funny as well, because obviously with, you know, angels being brought up uh, in, in various films, you you know it's very strong religious iconography but it it is almost secular in the sense that they're they're not bringing sort of the word of god as it were they're bringing the the improvement of humanity through acts of kindness or through greater generosity at christmas or whatever whatever the case may be um maybe what we're gathering is that the actual true religion in america is sexy carrie grant maybe that's yeah honestly (laughs) A lot of people in that film are are there for it, and I'm there for it in the audience. I love that that took. So, there's a great dog in that film also, and I was mostly focused on the great dog until Cary Grant showed up and started seducing the wife, and I was like, "What film is this? And can I watch it ten more times?" Um, it's a wild ride. A lot of these Christmas films take really left turns, and you're like, "What is happening?" Um, That went off the rails. I think I don't remember what I was talking about. I think what we were well, we were just discussing about this idea of can or what was Hollywood actually able to bring in kind of overt religion into its Christmas right. films? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think that they are. I thinking more widely. I can't think of a Christmas film that is specifically about religion and not about the lived experience of what Christmas means to the people experiencing Christmas in America. It, it's funny as well because you have things like is, is it America on 34th Street where yes. they're talking about you know the the Santa figure is talking about um, whether or not you know he can be proven to be Santa and all this kind of stuff. I, I think it might have been is it is, is that is it the older version which is where they're in a courtroom or something like that and there's the mm-hmm. the letters to santa and then i think in the more modern version there's like a version where they're talking about how the, the dollar bills saying god we trust yes. or something like that and it's like how can you prove god exists yet you're writing on your money and this is like a, a formal you know legal thing and yet you know why can't we formally acknowledge santa or whatever it is so it does seem as if religion doesn't (laughs) play a part in it but almost at times just to uh bring together this more secular idea of what of what christmas is 
Yeah, it's it's just a plot device more than an actual description of what Christmas is about. Um, in all of the films, in my opinion. But Miracle on 34th Street, that's interesting that you bring that up because in Miracle on 34th Street, you have this character of Chris Kringle who says that he is Santa Claus. Um, and Doris, who is played by Maureen O'Hara in the 47 version, she fires him from Macy's because she thinks he's insane because he <laughs> thinks he's Santa Claus. And he had been playing Santa in the department store and telling kids where they can get kids and parents where they can get the toys that they actually want for Christmas, even mm -hmm. though Macy's is out of them. And uh, Doris is outraged by this because she's head of sales and she yeah. has to sell gifts that sell the products that they bought too many of or that other people aren't buying. And Santa is a way to market those toys to kids and be like, you know what you really want for Christmas is this <laughs> item we bought 34 of. <laughs> and he's, Chris Kringle is just taken aback and he's so personally offended. He's like, how could you tell a child what they actually want? How could you not get them what they want for Christmas? Mm -hmm. And he, it, this, this policy of telling people where they can get an honest price for it um, or who still has them in stock is dubbed this goodwill policy. And Chris Kringle says that he keeps a close eye on the toy market which is a bizarre thing for Santa Claus to say because <laughs> in the North Pole, Santa is making his toys yeah. um, with his elves and delivering them himself. But in 1947 Manhattan, Santa is keeping an eye on the toy market and the stocks of various stores um, for who has the best prices on the toys. <laughs> and in the like following- an independent scene, watchdog or something. He's like an independent watchdog for, for children. Exactly, yeah. Um, and up until that point, he had been portraying a lot of kind of traditional mythologies of Santa. He's, he's talking about his reindeer and um, how Cupid sits on his left and all, all of that kind of stuff. He's just honing in on like the, the traditional kind of musical lyrical identifiers of who Santa is so that the audience would know, okay, this is actually Santa Claus, right? And then Maureen O'Hara fires him. And in the next scene, immediately he's hired back. And from then on only portrays this kind of economic wise Santa mm -hmm. who, who is watching the toy markets and who doesn't really remark on any of these like mythical things about him anymore. So Macy's literally fires the cultural projection of Santa Claus and rehires their economic one in this film. And it's a, it's a complete departure from any kind of traditional religious mm -hmm. figure of Kris Kringle, which comes from the German um, word Kris Kringlin, meaning the child of Christ or Christ bearer. Um, so they, they fire the Santa who has any sort of even minor connection to Christ. And yep. they, they hire the department store Santa that they wanted. It's brilliant. That pure capitalism. Pure capitalism. Toby, have you fired many religious figures in your time? <laughs> mm, that was too long. <laughs> 
No, no I, I, I don't think I would do that to any religious figures. <laughs> you, know, <fair> <laughs> you, you might ask them to have proper taxation, like a corporation, but you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't uh, fire anyone. Oh yeah, most, most definitely. I, th- I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Um, that the America doesn't really, well, in these these kinds of films, doesn't really engage with with any of that. It's, it's yeah, yeah, it's really it, interesting. It is surprising as you the say. Fe- so. Festival, the festival, the spectacle of um, sort of commercialization, as it sort of stands of secular commercialization, sort of stands on its own as an authentic representation of the the season almost it has its own myths its own traditions yeah um and and the actual origins of it despite america being america doesn't seem to to be a part of it as it's, it's really it's yeah really strange it's a good point you bring up this idea of i i guess of how america has now sort of redefined Christmas or redefine this, this Santa mythology uh, in, into its own. Um, mm-hmm. We are kind of well past the hour mark now. Are we wanting, is there anything more like specifically, Vaughn, you'd like to touch on on your research, but you know, anything you'd like to kind of summarize as far as kind of what's important to look at when you're looking at the, this time period before we move on? Um, I don't think so. I mean, we touched on a lot of the, the kind of things that I'm looking at in my research. Um, mm-hmm. If anybody has questions, feel free to reach out. But yeah, I think I think the main thing, to, the main takeaway for my work is that you can't assume anything is innocent. Um, mm-hmm. Any media, at least, is innocent. Everything should be watched critically and interrogated um, on some sort of level, even if it is just something that you expect to be a kid's film like santa claus 3 escape clause is a condemnation of capitalism (laughs) and that is something that that is worth talking about or or at the very least thinking about when you're watching films like this um things that actually there is there's one one thing because um you talked about the 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 sort of atomic war cold war and and Mm. things like that like in terms of like anti-communism what's in like thematically what sort of bursts out to you in terms of anti-communism all these films because i because i i sort of took classes in italian post-war film and there was a lot of communist directors and a lot of the the ways they expressed themselves was like they liked a lot of like um wide angle shots with a lot of people doing things that were organic and Mm -hmm. they did not like uh, singling people out or trying to express um, one person as the hero of a story they they always wanted to be like a a community and and yeah so what's what and thematically how, how is communism dealt with especially in a you know a a theme like christmas or a festival like christmas where sharing and you know f- uh, coming together is uh really important so yeah so how how do these films I, you you must have touched them earlier but how do these films really tackle communism right so um there are some more overt kind of condemnations of communism in the films in susan slept here in 1954 debbie reynolds um steps on a cop's foot spits in his face and calls him a communist 
um, when he's trying to arrest her. And in Miracle on 34th Street, um, one character is talking about how commercialism of Christmas is so bad. And he says, there's an awful lot of isms going around and none of them are good, um, which is a little allusion to communism. There are more kind of overt, straight up lines about communism in the films. Um, but in the more interpretive senses, mm -hmm. this is really interesting because particularly with It's a Wonderful Life, um, in 1947, the FBI filed a report saying that It's a Wonderful Life is communist subversion mm. because it glorifies the common man, as you're saying. And it, it shows that anyone can be kind of um, extraordinary. And for the FBI, that was something that is communist which is really anti-American when you think about it, because American identity up until 46, certainly, and arguably still till today, American individualism is one of the most iconic American traits and American exceptionalism that our average people are extraordinary. So it's this very American patriotic portrayal of George Bailey but because he's a common man who's doing exceptional things in opposition to big banks and he's rallying his whole or his whole town rather rallies around him at the end and pools their wealth for him. The FBI said that that's communist. And the interesting thing about film is that you can't say that because <laughs> films are art and open to interpretation. And there are kind of signifiers, like you said, of wide angle shots, kind of showing a lot of people working together um, and how to get your point, how, how to get that kind of message across in your film. But it's still open to interpretation. And also in 47, our old friend Ayn Rand published a pamphlet specifically about this, about how to identify and root out communists um, from your production crews on films. And she listed 10 points or 13 points um, of do's and don'ts for how to keep communism out of your films. And they were things that the FBI cited in their report that It's a Wonderful Life did. So from 1947 onwards, at least until about 1954, you can see some of these points that Ayn Rand was highlight highlighting as things to not do or things to do to keep communism from subverting your films. You can see them in the films. Um, things like one is um, never condemn um, big institutions or financial institutions specifically. And in Miracle on 34th Street, they're very careful to have the villain of the film who is claiming that Santa is um, insane, specifically be the store psychiatrist and not any of the CEOs. And they brand Macy's in the film as the store with the heart even though one of their employees was accusing Santa of being insane. So the message that the audience comes away with is that Macy's is the good guy because they hired Santa. 
and they enacted this goodwill policy. Um, they wanted to be honest with their, their customers when really they were supporting this court case that Santa Claus was insane. So you can see these kind of traces of Ayn Rand's influence in the films um, of her, her list of how to not be communist. And that permeates the films more than any kind of communist tendencies do. That's really fascinating. I really hope I never think about Iron Man and Christmas ever again. But <laughs> yeah, or just just her any time of the year, to be perfectly honest. Um, okay, are we wanting to close off on Vaughn's research there and move on to the the end part of the show, which is just a couple of little Christmas games? Yeah, games. Okay, <laughs> so. Um, I wonder what I'm thought about Christmas. Like, should you give anyone gifts? I mean, no. that's a good no. point, Toby. I mean, given that's... giving people gifts is about about virtue, so you shouldn't give anyone <laughs> gifts. It is. People who deserve. <laughs> Morris, Morris is failing to be handing out presents to people. I mean, that's what the psychiatrist says in Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Maybe, maybe the psychiatrist is just Dane Rant. Maybe, yeah. Oh, I'm gonna write that down too. Right, this that has been helpful there. for my research this whole episode. Thank you, guys. Australia is not a country, and Iron Rand is the therapist. That's what we've. Oh God. That's what we've got. Right, Christmas films. That's going to be the first part of our our. Well, it's kind of Christmas films. Actually, kind of is the kind of global point of these games. They are built around Christmas films, so we've got a few different little ones to do. The first one I'm going to be doing is is uh, a list of Christmas films. And I'm just going to ask Vaughn very quickly, should, kind of rapid fire response. Are these a Christmas film? Is this a Christmas film or is it not? So it's a Christmas or not Christmas kind of response. And uh, then once we're done, Vaughn, you can give any thoughts on any of the uh, any of the responses. But try, we'll try and make it rapid fire to begin with. And then we'll okay. move on to another game after that. I'm pouring wine as you're explaining. Sorry if there's background noise. That's, I mean... <laughs> To be honest, that's most of the background noise we hear when you're speaking anyway, so. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so okay. does my supervisor. All right, lightning round, hit me. Okay, so Christmas or not Christmas? All right. Die Hard. Christmas. Sleepless in Seattle. Oh. I don't remember that film very well, but Christmas. Edward Scissorhands. Christmas. In Bruges. I don't think I know that film. Not Christmas. No, Christmas. I got an argument with someone about this where they told me it was Christmas. Okay. Gremlins. Christmas. Children of Men. <laughs> I think that's Christmas. I feel like Dan yelled at me that that's Christmas. <laughs> Trading Places. Christmas. Little Woman. Christmas. Carol. Are all of these Christmas? <laughs> that's Christmas. The Apartment. Christmas. The Princess Switch. Uh, Christmas and a fantastic one. Vanessa Batman. Hudgens. Batman, Batman Returns. Returns. Mm-hmm. So that was a not, sequel. Not Christmas. Eyes Wide Shut. Christmas. Sexy Christmas. LA Confidential. Christmas. Silver Linings Playbook. You know, that film and the book were written and based on my undergraduate university and I've never read or seen it. 
Um, not Christmas. Rocky Four. Christmas. Come on. All Shane Black films. Christmas. And then we've got two left. Um, probably we know the answer to this. Star Wars Holiday Special. Um, Life Day, not Christmas. <laughs> not Christmas. Very good. And uh, this one is uh, sort of bonus one because I don't think it actually takes place at Christmas, but it might capture the spirit of it. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Christmas. That's interesting because I think that is actually that's not actually Christmas. It takes place, is it? Is it? Um, is it actually what's it called? The holiday before um, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Is it Thanksgiving? Planes, trains, and automobiles. I'm not actually sure, but it is a culturally Christmas film that people that... watch at Christmas. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I was going to throw another one. So, for instance, I did hear today that, or the other day actually on Twitter, that someone decided that Lord of the Rings, all their films, are Christmas films because, yeah, they, have because el- elves. They, have, they have elves in them. So And and Skinny Santa being and Gandalf. Exactly. So that, that's a good question, actually. What, what defines a Christmas film? Because some of those are actual Christmas films, like Elf is a Christmas film. Yeah. But then you have something like Batman Returns, which has scenes that take place at Christmas. Or Silver, Silver Linings Playbook has films that take place at Christmas. Isn't Batman Begins the Christmas one? So Batman Begins is the first Christian Bale one. Right. Um, I think Batman Returns is the one with, unless I've gotten mixed up, I think is the one with Michelle Pfeiffer. So that's the second Tim Burton one. Mm. Is I think there's some Christmas scenes in Batman Returns. Yeah, we. Right. I, I'm okay. pretty sure that's the case. But, but what makes a Christmas film is an excellent question that is most of the introduction of my thesis um, because I have to justify this stuff. So I am arguing that a Christmas film in context of my research is a, is a film whose plot depends on Christmas. Um, that Christmas in some way is a defining feature of the plot or an mm-hmm. influence on the characters' lives. Um, or is a setting for the events of the plot. Even if it doesn't have a huge bearing on it, there mm-hmm. are kind some kind of like implicit things that, that just setting something at Christmas will establish for your audience. Um, like the kind of sentimental feeling of a film. See, that's interesting. So that's one of the reasons I included Children of Men there, for instance, which is not like overtly Christmas in the sense that, you know, there's like Santas and trees and stuff. It, it's more, we have a literal miracle child being carried by a woman and sort of being transported Mm. around and trying to uh, survive while people, you know, potentially could harm it, uh, which obviously ties into this biblical sense of, of Mary with the, the the virgin birth and the miracle child. So it is interesting that even something like that, which you might not overtly think is like a Christmas elfy film does actually have maybe strong religious themes and strong, you know, um, humanity themes, which themselves play into into the, the Christmas aura that might become a Christmas film. Right. I don't think I've ever seen that film. You should. It's excellent. I, I feel like Dan tells me this on a regular basis. My flatmate tells me this on a regular basis. And I'm pretty sure they yelled at me last week that it is a Christmas film. So it would have been topical for me to watch it this week. Not only is it a Christmas film, it has Michael Caine playing a hippie. Stop. Mm-hmm. Hippie. That should have been the first selling point for me. <laughs> so, yes, it's it's a really, really good film. 
and it how happened. does Michael Caine play hippie? How does he do that? Um, he looks like Michael Caine, except he's like smoking weed and he's got like funky jumpers. I want it. Does he still have his accent, or you know, that's a good question. I'm pretty sure Michael Caine always has his accent, so mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it, it's been a couple of years since I last saw it, but yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a very worthwhile watch, and I think you might get some. I I saw him in a Woody Allen film once, and and I can't imagine um, he was made to be an American, but he just he just had his accent. He wasn't. Yeah, he it's, it's like Sean Connery, whether or not he's like a Russian submarine captain or an Irish cop, he's still Scottish. You know, yeah. I love his his Russian um, <laughs> portrayal of it, literally just being Scottish. It's one I think of that is sometimes ones. better though because sometimes you put on a really fake accent and you're just like what like you're just completely lost from the film like I, i'd rather have sean connery just be scottish like imagine if sean connery tried to be like dutch or something that would just be terrible like yeah. just, just stick or to if, he, if he tried to do a philly accent oh if, if only that had, uh, that happened um <laughs> <laughs> right okay shall we move on to the next game then um yeah the next one is going to be a tagline game so we're going to read out a, a tagline and uh, Vaughn's going to ca- try and guess what it is. Now, mm. in order to uh, achieve the full Christmas effect, we are getting a special guest on to help read these out. Yeah. So uh, I am calling upon my wife, who is most definitely talented of the two people in this room. Ebba, do you want to come on over? Hello. So, Hi. So not only is this special because uh, she is indeed going to be reading out uh, these taglines, and which will be the first time Ebba will make in a guest appearance. It's actually technically the first time Ebba has spoken to Vaughn, in, in a sense, because I think you've sent text messages and stuff, but never actually spoken. This is what I sound like. This is what you sound I, like. You have a beautiful voice, and it is a pleasure to hear you. Same to Sorry, you. I've had wine. Sorry. See, Christmas it's lovely miracle. to meet you. <laughs> Bringing people together. Toby That's and- what Christmas is all about. Absolutely. T- Toby and Ebba are, are long old friends and Toby came to our wedding <laughs> and uh, actually read a Time for Choosing speech at our wedding. <laughs> uh, it was very moving. Many many of my family are very pro-Reagan. No. Uh... Jesus. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Ebba, do you want to uh, read out the tagline? So just as a say, the tagline Either they came from the movie poster or they came from the IMDb section tagline. So I think a lot of the time films have multiple ones. So it may be quite difficult for some of these. But um, Vaughn, just try your best. Ebba, on you go. Okay, the first one goes. It will blow you through the back wall of the theatre. Um... Vaughn disappeared. <laughs> is the... That's a Christmas film? I'd say so. I think, uh, think... You you said so. Is it Die Hard? Yes. Is that really the tagline for Die Hard? <laughs> <laughs> so okay. According to IMDb or and or the film poster, yes. Mm, okay. Okay, second one. Love actually is all around. Uh love actually. Yay! Got that one. Number three. Two dads, one toy, no prisoners. Oh, is that Jingle All the Way? Yes. Well done. It's such a good film. Three for three. Number four. This Christmas, the snow hits the fan. Mm. 
I think it's a more modern film, if that helps at is all. It, is mm. Or slightly more modern. It's not like 100 years old. The Snow Hits the Fan. Is that maybe National Lampoons? No, it's the no. Santa Claus. Oh. I think that's the Tim Allen one. Is that right? Yeah. 94. There you go. Interesting. Oh, you even know the year. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, next one. This holiday season, believe. Just believe. Just believe, yeah. Is, is that Miracle on 34th Street, 94? No. No? It's the Polar <laughs> Express, which is the animated one. Oh, the, the terrifying one. Yeah, the, the Uncanny Valley one. That's, that's um, Robert Zemeckis. It is, yeah. Okay, next one. This holiday, discover your inner elf. Elf? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's make some of these easy. Okay, next one. Holy cow! <laughs> I don't know that one. Again, so there were multiple ones, but... The one on the poster for this was very long and gave away the main character's name. So I went with one that was on the IMDb page for this. And this is Home Alone. Oh, okay. Wow. I'm not a fan of Home Alone, which is a very controversial thing what? that I just admitted. Yeah, yeah not, Christ- really a Christmas film expert who doesn't like Home Alone. Are we going to cancel Vaughn? Can we eject Vaughn <laughs> from this podcast? Now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think... I think Vaughn is technically allowed her own opinion, so um okay. Mm, I, I mm. think actually I am the Christmas film expert here, so you guys are wrong. That's that's how no. it works. Just saying. We only approve of one opinion uh, <laughs> on anything, so that's 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 how we work. Good old communist Vaughn. <laughs> okay, next one. You ready, Vaughn? Yes. He's the world's coolest dad, and he's going to prove it. Jack Frost. Yes, well with done. Michael Keaton. Uh, yes, I think it is Michael Keaton, isn't it? That's one of my wow. favorite Christmas films, actually. There you go. Okay, next one. They're not just getting rich; they're getting even. Oh. Ooh. I know this one. You do. Oh damn it! Can I have a hint? Yeah. Uh, 80s? Um, okay, that's less of a hint, actually. Okay. 1980s film, comedy. Um, I can... Dan Aykroyd? Eddie Murphy? Oh, is that... Wait, is that Ghostbusters 2? Trading Places? Trading places. Oh, I okay. Yeah, no, I didn't get that. Okay. I did know that one, but I didn't get it. You didn't know. Fair enough. Say that Ghostbusters okay. 2 is a Christmas film. <laughs> this one. Fun... film in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very 80s film. Right. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is uh, one. Well, I'm hoping this is one you'll get. Santa's in town early this year. If you don't, there's going to be a lot of judgment from from people santa's in town early this year mainly because you've spoken about your fondness for this film and or 
person. Maybe not on the podcast, but it, it, to us all. Um, do you want Muppet a Christmas Carol? Do you I want a hint? Yes, it, please. The, the sexiest Santa possible. <gasps> oh, oh my God. The Christmas Chronicles. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Kurt Russell is the sexiest Santa. And Golly Hawn is the sexiest Mrs. Claus. Those are definitive facts. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was spoken by you. So um, it, that that is now official. Yeah. Okay. No, Second to last one. All right. Sex. Murder. Mystery. Welcome to the party. Is um oh the one that I said is sexy Christmas. Eyes wide shut? No, it's a Shane Black film. Oh. Oh, um mm. none are coming to mind. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Oh, damn. That is a great film. It is, yeah. It's a really good film. Okay, and the last one. Sometimes you just got to have faith. That also rings a bell. Um, I, I would go with the last word in that as being a, a song, which is also connected to um, the film title in a way. George Michael, maybe. Oh, what is that film called? Is that Last Christmas? Yes. Woohoo! Well done. That was very impressive, Vaughn. No, it wasn't, but thank you. I mean, you did, considering you had to kind of just pull these out of thin air, I thought you did rather well. Thank you. Yes. That was it, very good. Yes. Apart from the Homeland thing, which it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, well, thank you to Ebba. Uh, that is her first. Yes, thank experience. you, Abba. And uh, um, you know, Christmas spirit and all that. So you know, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure maybe next year we can uh, get uh, Vaughn's cat on for. I mean, he sort of made an appearance already. Um, yeah, the other one also just came in while we were doing that, and she was distracting me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put my losses there down to uh, Boomer walking in. So. Okay. Glad to see you've uh, got your excuses at hand, Vaughn. Yeah, not the wine in my hand or my lack of knowledge, but the cat. (laughs) Thing thing is, if we'd done Christmas Chronicles first, then we could have blamed anyone she got wrong just on you thinking about Kurt Russell. Thinking about Kurt Russell and (laughs) Goldie Hawn. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I'm never not thinking about Kurt Russell Santa during Christmas. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Right. So we have two things left to cover on the podcast. Mm. Uh, one is a game by Vaughn, uh, or she's going to kind of present for us. And then after that, we're going to get Vaughn's definitive list of the sort of a, a Christmas bracket of films that we're going to go through and Vaughn's going to declare a winner. So Vaughn, why don't you, uh, why don't you start the, uh, the last remaining game for us before we move on to the mm. Christmas bracket? So do you want to just explain okay. what it is? Yes. So this, this game is I have a list of main characters, love interests, side characters, villains, and settings for from various Christmas films. Um, and I want each of you, or maybe just collectively, to pick a number for each of those lists 
Mm-hmm. And I will tell you who your characters are and what your setting is. And I want you guys to make a plot for a Christmas film based on those things. Shall we just do one film then? Just yeah. in the interest of time. Yeah, so, let's just do one. So okay. pick a number, one of you, for your so main characters. What's the number between, sorry again? Oh, one and ten. One and ten. Uh, Toby, do you want to go first? Uh, do you want to pick a number between one and ten? Uh, I'll pick three. Three. Okay, that is Han Solo. Wow. <laughs> Strong start, Toby. That's, that's a good pick for wow, us. Awesome. All right, Simon, pick one through ten. Seven. Seven. Your love interest is Liam Neeson from Love Actually. Wow. So Han Solo and Liam Neeson. This is um, a very forced. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> there are, so is he is he his character from Star Wars or is it Liam Neeson from, from no Love Liam Neeson from Love Actually so Daniel uh, right okay so it's Daniel it's it's Marvel. not Han and Qui Gon that's a different it's <laughs> a different fan fiction um, okay. I like this okay so we're we're starting off with a gay Christmas which I think is fantastic it's excellent very twenty twenty um, Toby pick a number one to ten seven. Ooh, Chewbacca. <laughs> nice. Oh, okay. Awesome. Excellent. Simon, one to ten. One. Jim Carrey's Grinch. Oof. All right. So you guys have Han Solo, Liam Neeson, Chewbacca. Liam Neeson is your love interest. Um, Chewbacca is your side character. Jim Carrey's Grinch is a villain. And for the setting, Toby, pick a number one to ten. Five. Whoville. Wow, this right. rather well. Give me a film using Han Solo as your main character, Chewbacca as a sidekick, as always, um, Liam Neeson from Love Actually as the love interest, with the Grinch as your villain in Whoville. Well, immediately I'm thinking that Chewbacca and Han Solo are like doing some adventure and get go yeah. through some wormhole. Uh, they, they ha- yeah, happen to find a wormhole into into Whoville, uh, Whoville where, where yeah. the Grinch is the the villain. Absolutely. Now, how Liam and and, and, and Neeson is the is the love interest. Yes. So, was he already in the ship prior to them going to this wormhole, or was he just randomly visiting Whoville, or was he in his own wormhole and he separately arrived in Whoville? I guess we have some decisions to make. Do you know what I think? I think they go into a wormhole mm-hmm. and they actually had Qui-Gon Jinn on the ship. <laughs> the wormhole made him into his character from Love Actually. Wow. And yeah, so it's it's awkward. Yes. Right. But he could be of he could be of great use to them. He could. Against against the Grinch and his uh his minions. So do you think like but, the, the spirit of like Whoville? brings out like a a romantic side of Han of Han Solo and they him and Liam Neeson sort of bond together as they have to take down the Grinch character and may, maybe they sort of steal a kiss while Chewbacca's not looking Ooh. and the kiss makes him into his character from Star Wars wow so it finishes yeah. with Han Solo making out with Qui-Gon yeah yeah. Under, after, under after, some mistletoe? Yes, after they've... Well, I suppose they defeat the Grinch, but I guess they would make his heart bigger and to turn him into 
Um, you know, maybe he's now pro LGBT. I don't know. Um, <laughs> he's maybe... not an ally. He's a campaigner. Exactly. <laughs> I think it, I think that it's quite clear though that we've got a structure off this. I think what we now need to do, yeah. the three of us, is go away and write the script. No, I would watch that. <laughs> I mean, we know I would, even though I have some like. I'm not gonna lie, a little um, nitpicky things about the timeline of Han Solo knowing Qui-Gon Jinn in the Star Wars universe, but I will keep this to myself. Well, you know, I think if that's your biggest question about all of this, I think we're probably <laughs> quite well. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's a great film. I would watch that. Yeah. Okay. Well, if if any uh, movie makers are out there and would like to make that film, please get in contact, and uh, the Impressions Gang will do what we can to come up with the script um well Vaughn, thank you for that that was a lot of fun um i think we should maybe do that every episode where we come together all the characters that we've talked about be it you know nixon and kissinger nixon. or whoever and then we can maybe put together a uh, a film based on the characters nixon, kissinger and mistletoe what could go wrong <laughs> <laughs> yep i think that's what the people want just general eroticness um <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving swiftly on from that, shall we? Uh, shall we cover the uh, the Christmas bracket of films, Vaughn? Is that the best way? Um, I've got the the image in front of us. So what this is is there's basically a list of um, of films, and they sort of go head to head in in a bracket against uh, one another. So uh, do you want me to introduce the sort of the the scenarios, or should, or should I just leave it all up to you, Vaughn? Um. Yeah, if you want to, if you have an idea for how to structure this. Okay, so there are, if you imagine four sides of this, um, you've got your old school classics on your top left, and then on your bottom left, you've got your very uh, special TV Christmases. So the old school classics will sort of face one another until they reach the final, um, which case, or the final on their side, in which case they'll come up against the best, very special TV Christmases side, and that will produce a winner on the left-hand side, and then on the right-hand side, we have the modern classic films, and they will compete against each other, and they will then uh, come up against the winner of the left-field varieties uh, of films. So we've got a few different ones there. So basically what we'll do is it'll be a head-to-head, and then eventually we'll come up with the ultimate head-to-head, which will be the films from the left-hand side of the bracket versus the film from the right-hand side of the bracket. So in the end, so it'll always be one film against another until there's only two remaining. And uh, then we will be head-to-head on the ultimate Christmas film showdown. And as always, it is Vaughn who decides this because she is the ultimate film expert. <laughs> so yes. st- starting on, on the top left then on the old school classic, we have It's a Wonderful Life versus Babes in Toyland. Vaughn? Yes. Um, so as i have said already through a lot of this podcast babes in toyland sucks (laughs) (laughs) stupid film i don't enjoy it um but it is an iconic christmas film and it is an old school classic from my research so i had to kind of justify putting it on the, the bracket um but ultimately it's a wonderful life definitely wins that one because it's one of my favorite films of all time not only just christmas Okay, so the next old school um, classic then is uh, White Christmas versus Miracle on 34th Street, the 1947 version. 
So this one was a bit more difficult because these are both films that I grew up with watching every year, like I said, and they're two of my mom's favorite films, actually. Um, she and I have this tradition of watching White Christmas every year at the first snowfall. Um, and then Miracle on 34th Street was just something that we just always watched at Christmas. And because I study them so much, um, my opinions of them have changed, not necessarily for the worse or better, but they have changed slightly. And for being true to who I am now, and I guess then White Christmas wins that one. Um, I love the songs. I love Bing Crosby's voice. I like being crooned into Christmas. So White Christmas. Okay. I'm thinking we, we will do this then. We'll just close out the old school classics and then we can move on to the other films on the left-hand mm. side of the panel. So that okay. then gives us a, a, a battle between It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas for the best old school classic. Ultimately, it has to be It's a Wonderful Life. It's a classic. Um, it's the film that I've probably seen more than any other film in my life. And it's a film that, even though I've seen it probably a hundred times, I cry every single time. It, it just has a very beautiful message. So that one, it beats out White Christmas. Lovely. So that's our uh, old school classic section done. So uh, it's a Wonderful Life is now waiting the winner of the very special TV Christmases uh, section. So that then moves us on to South Park Woodland Critter Christmas versus Bob's Burgers Christmas in the Car. Okay, so um, this whole section I honestly put in so that I could put Star Wars Holiday Special and Woodland Critter Christmas <laughs> in um, because I love both of those things so much um and woodland critter christmas i don't know how many people have seen it have you two seen it i have um i'm not sure it, so it's about these woodland critters and it's it's like set up like a dr seuss kind of rhyme scheme for christmas um yeah. and ultimately stan finds out that the woodland critters um one of them is pregnant, Porcupiney, is pregnant with the child of their of their Lord and Savior. Um, and Stan assumes that it'll be Jesus, but actually it's Satan's child and their satanic woodland critter little woodland critters at Christmas. And it still makes me laugh, even though I've seen that probably a hundred times too. Um, so that one wins. That one wins. That and Bob's Burgers. But I do love that episode of Bob's Burgers, Christmas in the Car. So we have a nice satanic victory there. Yes. Um, Star Wars, the next uh, battle is uh, Star Wars Holiday Special versus uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas Special. Yeah. So you clearly don't know what that is. I don't. Um, <laughs> it's a Muppet film uh, made oh, for TV. Really? From, I think, the 70s? 80s one of them um it's just this classic little film about this muppet otter who uh just wants a joke like he, he wants a a joke band or a banjo or something for christmas um and it's this sweet little film that is again one of my mom's favorites and we watched it every year as kids um it's it's just very touching and there's nice music in it and it's very muppety and mm -hmm. feel good and wholesome um, and then Star Wars Holiday Special, because Star Wars had to be on the list. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a list I made if Star Wars doesn't make it. Um, this I watched for the first time two weeks ago. 
um, which if you're interested in that, I'm put a very long drunken thread about it on my Twitter. Um, and it was a hot mess and I loved it, except for a few problematic bits that um, are genuinely problematic, but it's Star Wars content and I'm never one to stick my nose up at that. But Emmett Otters, for sentimental reasons, has to win that one because the Star Wars Holiday Special is terrible, um, yes. but enjoyable. Okay. But Emmett Otters is like sentimental, sweet, and wholesome. So. so, so that then sets up a showdown between uh, Seth Park and Emmett Otters. Yes, and as I said, Emmett Otters is sweet and wholesome and sentimental, um, and just good. Whereas Woodland Critter Christmas is the exact opposite of those things, but better. Mm-hmm. So Woodland Critter Christmas wins. Okay, so on the left-hand side of this bracket, then that then gives us a, a showdown between It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> and South Park. And we will see. So who is victorious and makes it through to the grand final? I think that I would be kicked out of my PhD program if I said that South Park was better than Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. So It's a Wonderful Life. Um, wins that side of the bracket. Okay. <laughs> Probably just as well. Uh, so then that moves us over to the right-hand side. So we're going to start with the modern classics. So we've got How the Grinch Stole Christmas versus The Muppet Christmas Carol. Yes. Um, so both of these are absolute modern classics. Um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas is the 2001 with, with Jim Carrey, who whom we saw earlier um, being defeated by becoming <laughs> a gay ally um, because of Han Solo and Liam Neeson. Um, which, uh, if that was the ending, I might reconsider this, but a Muppet, the Muppet Christmas Carol takes this matchup um, because it's just an incredible film. I watched it today after I finished work um, and it was just just as delightful as it always is every year um it has to win yeah how the Grinch stole Christmas even though special shout out for the Grinch for um being the first positive representation of self-care oh yeah that's nice uh we watched Muppet Christmas Carol the other week which was actually Ebba's first time watching it and um yeah it's just great Maybe the best film. Maybe the best film ever made. Uh, I would agree. I would tend to agree. I said recently on Twitter that the Muppet Christmas Carol is the best film ever made, and Citizen Kane can jog on. Um, and Toby was not a fan of that tweet. <laughs> <laughs> also, also, that means now that between Muppet Christmas Carol and Children of Men, we've got a Michael Caine double bill for Christmas. Yes. Wow. I was thinking that earlier when you said when you said Michael Caine's a hippie. So uh, we shall now move on to Scrooge, Scrooged versus Die Hard. Uh, I've seen both films, uh, although I've seen Die Hard a lot more. Uh, some might think that uh, Die Hard has an easy victory ahead, but uh, Vaughn, you're a fan of both these films. Some, some might think that. Um, and, the, you know, I might get hate for this one. I've only seen Die Hard once. And that was four years ago at the Prince Charles Cinema in London mm-hmm. um, when I was snowed in at the cinema, which was quite a cool experience. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've only seen it once and I really enjoyed it. It's an excellent film, but Scrooge takes it for me. Um, 
because I absolutely adore Bill Murray as a Scrooge character. I think he hits every note perfectly in that film. Um, he plays the emotion well. He plays the angry and like asshole character well. Um, everyone in the film is just fantastic. Carol Kane is mm. the, the ghost of Christmas Present. Um, and she's brilliant. Yeah. It's, just, it's such a good film. I would highly recommend to anyone. And I am arguing that it is better than Die Hard. So that's the question. Is it a better film than Die Hard or is it simply a better Christmas film than Die Hard? I'd say it's a better film. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to get some shit for that one, but <laughs> that's all right. Uh, film fact, Roger Ebert wasn't a huge fan of Die Hard. He actually preferred Die Hard 2 to Die Hard 1. Um, he actually hated Scrooge. He gave it one star. So there you well, go. Well, good thing he's wrong. Good thing he's wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So that then uh, leaves us a battle for the modern classics between uh, Muppet Christmas Carol and Scrooge. It's got to be Muppet Christmas Carol. As yeah. much as I love Scrooge and I've seen it a billion times, that was my dad's favorite film when I was growing up. Um, Muppet Christmas Carol is just perfect. A fair choice. So uh, that's the top right section. So Muppet Christmas Carol is now awaiting the, the victor of the left field favorites. Mm-hmm. Um so the first one is Christmas with the Coopers versus Claus, or Klaus, sorry. Klaus, yes. Klaus, yes. Um, so Christmas with the Coopers is a film kind of like Love Actually, but it's all about one family and they're all coming together for Christmas and it's like showing their journeys to get to Christmas um, and why Christmas means so much to them that year. And I don't know if there's anything particularly special about the film, but it's just so well-balanced. Um, it's funny, but it's emotional and it's kind of heart-wrenching at times. Um, it, it has a brilliant cast. Olivia Wilde is in it. Um, Diane Keaton, John Goodman, uh, John Lacey. It's, it's a great cast and it's just a very, it's a very good film. And I watched it for the first time on a flight and I cried. So, oh. now, yeah. so that's up against... Uh, Claus. Claus, yes. Or Klaus, rather. Klaus, yes. That is a film that I don't know if either of you have seen, but it's a very recent film. And it's is that the anim- animated one? Yes, it's animated. Um, it was nominated for an Academy Award. It's an absolutely stunning film, and I actually watched it again the other day. Um, it has Jason Schwartzman and J.K. Simmons. Mm-hmm. Um, Norm MacDonald is in it. Rashida Jones. It's about a postman who goes to this um, isolated island to learn a lesson, essentially, um, and grow up, which a lot of Christmas films are about that, mm. but or have that kind of theme to them. Um, and he starts delivering letters to this woodsman in the woods named, named Klaus, who um, makes toys and brings them to these kind of desolate children who are writing about their kind of horrific living conditions with their parents who are all at war with each other. And Klaus's gifts and the postman bringing them um, completely change the spirit of the town. And it's, 
it's just stunning the whole film um i would highly recommend seeing it and for that it wins against christmas with the coopers very good so the next uh, two films are Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas yes. versus the Christmas Chronicles. Now we must state that uh, Love Actually did not make the list. So do you want to just s- state your reasons for that, Vaughn? Yes. I will clarify this and I will get backlash for this too. Love Actually to me is actually a Thanksgiving film because it starts five weeks before Christmas and that is when Thanksgiving is. So every year on Thanksgiving, my brother and I watch Love Actually together um and i count it more as a thanksgiving film than a christmas film and some of you might say vaughn that's only you everybody else thinks it's a christmas film but (laughs) this is my bracket so it's a thanksgiving film it's official right okay so do you want to move on to the (laughs) battle between beauty and the beast and the christmas chronicles this one was hard Okay, because the beauty and the beast the enchanted enchanted christmas has one of my favorite actors of all time Stanley Tucci. Of course. Because he's perfect. (laughs) And that film is fun. It's just a fun film. And I remember once, actually, in undergrad, I was at a frat party with one of my friends who lived in the frat house. And he was like, I don't really want to be at this party anymore. And I was like, what do you want to do? And he's like, let's watch a film. So we watched Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas, upstairs above a frat party. And it was one of the best nights of my (laughs) undergrad experience. It's a fantastic film, but The Christmas Chronicles has sexy, sexy Kurt Russell yep. as Santa Claus. So it wins just hands down. That's it. Okay. Wow. So, that... <laughs> <laughs> so that then sets up a battle between sexy Santa and Klaus. Yes. So Kurt Russell Santa against J.K. Simmons animated Santa, um, which this one is very narrow, but it has to be The Christmas Chronicles because I really enjoy that film. It's just a fun film. And Kurt Russell puts on sunglasses um, and sings in a jail cell. Wow. As Santa. It's great. It's a fun time. It, it, it sounds like it, especially yeah. if you're a fan of sexy Santa. Um, <laughs> so that then gives us a battle on the right-hand side of the bracket between Muppet Christmas Carol and The Christmas Chronicles. Muppet so, Christmas Carol. So even the sexiness of the Kurt Russell could not defeat the Of Kurt Russell painfully does not match just the sheer perfection. The sexiness of, of, of the Kermit the Frog. Of Kermit the Frog. <laughs> Thank you. Um, honestly, you know what? One of my favorite lines from Muppet Christmas Carol, and this is probably why it cinched it for me is Sam the Eagle telling um, young Ebenezer Scrooge that he could go into business and he's going to be a businessman. And he mm-hmm. says, you have to go into business. It's the American way. <laughs> and then Gonzo, who is playing Charles Dickson, Dickens, like pulls on his shoulder and he's like, we're in London. Uh, and Sam the Eagle's like, it's the British way. And it's just <laughs> perfect. Like, I love that so much. And then cheeses for the Mises. Yes. Like, it's just such a good film. It, it's quotable. It it's emotional. The songs are great. It's the Muppets. And I would like to point out that there are three types of media on this, being Star Wars Holiday Special, Emmett Otter's Joke at Christmas, and the Muppet Christmas Carol, that all have Muppets in them. Um, wow. So uh, j- just before the, the finale, I- I'd like to say I really enjoyed that that peroration that you just did there. And this is a film that I actually like. 
So uh, don't hurt me. Uh, <laughs> about which one? The Muppet Christmas. Uh, uh, the, the, it's uh, just such a good film. You know, actually, before we do the, the final one, my, I was talking to my brother about this bracket yesterday. And he was like, is the Muppets It's a Wonderful Life version not on it? I thought that was your favorite film. And I completely forgot that the Muppets have an It's a Wonderful Life version. <laughs> being a very merry Muppet uh, Christmas movie from 2002. It's an incredible film. And I'm really upset that I didn't put it on this list because I legitimately forgot it existed. So I feel like maybe because I forgot it ex existed, it isn't better than Muppet Christmas Carol, but it's one of my favorite films. Um, and I'm going to watch it tonight after we finish this. I think that that's a good point. Um, I think we should all watch more Muppet media. Um, we honestly should because the Muppets are anti-capitalist. Um, they're <laughs> communist icons. I'm writing a paper on it called It Ain't Easy Being Red, Kermy the Commie. <laughs> I'm genuinely not joking. Oh, Vaughn. <laughs> you are just a delight. Um, so this thing gives us a final showdown between It's a Wonderful Life and The Muppet Christmas Carol. And it should be noted that It's a Wonderful Life now has the tricky task of going up against apparently the greatest film ever made. Okay, genuinely. Muppet Christmas Carol is one of the best films ever made. Yep. But so is It's a Wonderful Life. Uh. <laughs> Are you going to hurt Toby? <laughs> I really wanted it to just be a tie. I really did. But That's not the American way. We must have a victor. It's not the American way, except for in Korea and Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so in the end, we decided just to hang around for eight years and then just quietly leave. Yeah, I'm just going to pass it on to, to whoever my successor is. Yeah, future is generations can, uh, can suffer. <laughs> can inherit this debate. We'll just keep adding to the list and escalating it further. Yeah, um, and then we're going to you know bomb Cambodia as part of this. No, wait, that's, that's, that's wrong. Um, right, okay, so It's a Wonderful Life, Muppet Christmas Carol. Who wins? I'm sorry, Toby. It's it's a wonderful life. <sighs> just, just sheer disappointment. <laughs> and... So much despair. I'm so sorry. It's just that film Ashering. is it. It's iconic for establishing Christmas as a film genre, and I don't know if we would have had so many iterations of a Christmas Carol if we didn't have It's a Wonderful Life. So in my kind of projection, we wouldn't have Muppets Christmas Carol without It's a Wonderful Life. So ultimately, It's a Wonderful Life has to win. I think we can all agree that that's the wrong choice, only because <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life doesn't have singing mice and singing rats. What a combination. Would the Muppets It's a Wonderful Life have beaten Muppet Christmas Carol? Probably. Who's to say? Yeah. I am, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so as much as Toby... So you would have had two versions of It's a Wonderful Life. I would have. Final... And I probably would have gone with the Muppets over Frank Capra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, we didn't have that because Vaughn, in her wisdom, or drunken stupor, decided not to include it. So we have to go with the official results, and these are the official results for the end of time. So if yeah, you ever want... If you ever want to know officially what the best Christmas film of all time is, it's A Wonderful Life, the non-Muppet version. So, so um, unfortunately, yes. unfortunately, 
Okay. Well, um, we've passed the two-hour mark now on the episode. Oh, Jesus. Um, so, well done to us. Easily the longest episode we've ever done, mainly because it's Christmas. So, it's a time for giving. So, you know, we, gi- yeah. we give you two hours of Christmas film talk. Take all that content. Exactly. Nice bow and wrapping. Okay. Drunk me. <laughs> um, shall, shall we close off any final remarks on this Christmas episode um, Toby or Vaughn would you like to add anything to the I mean just the the sheer weight of two hours of talking about Christmas films is there anything left to add um, is, or Vaughn is there a Christmas film you would recommend people seeing that maybe they haven't seen yet Oh, definitely Klaus. Okay. I think Klaus is one of the best Christmas films made in the last decade, or at least two. Uh, or likely two. It's an excellent film, and I'd highly, highly recommend it to everybody. I shall um, I shall check it out. I've not seen it yet. so. Um, since it's Christmas, I'll add a bit of sentimentality. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if this episode hasn't been dripping in it so far. But... To our dear listeners, um, this week, last year, was when Toby and Simon reached out to me to ask me to join. And I would like to raise my glass of wine to you two and thank you for this opportunity because it's been a very fun year and I have enjoyed this so, so much. So thank you for this opportunity and Merry Christmas, guys. Oh, thank you, Vaughn. Oh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, guys. having you you here. Yeah, Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I think the entertainment value of the show and probably the the wine expense off the show mm-hmm. has increased significantly since you've joined but yeah it's been well worth it i think i think toby and i can definitely agree on that one and i'm sure our listeners do too so um and it's so lovely that our first christmas together we get to uh, talk about um a, a subject so close to your heart fawn which is christmas mm. no i really appreciated this it's it's so like i'm kind of up to my neck in my research constantly but it's nice to actually talk it out with somebody else um, Mm -hmm. and be able to share this stuff because I really enjoy it so thank you guys for that well thank you um Toby any final words or shall we shall we just leave it on that note home alone you don't like home alone (laughs) (laughs) so maybe I should watch it again I haven't seen it in years but I didn't like it as a child. But maybe it was a stupid child, you know? <laughs> I'll watch it again and get back to you. Maybe you were a stupid child. That's, that's a good I mean, Most likely I was. Most yeah. children are, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. Anyway, okay. On on, uh, on that note, we should probably leave it. Uh, but yes, as, as Vaughn says, um, Merry Christmas to all our listeners. It's uh, been an odd year. And um, yeah, try and stay safe during this Christmas period as best you can. And uh, yes, enjoy the the next few days and weeks ahead. Uh, We're not sure when our next episode will be, but um, you've got over two hours worth in this episode. So we're probably done till about April, I'd say. Um, (laughs) uh, But we will know that return in the new year at some point, at some point in January. So um, until then, uh, Merry Christmas, uh, take care and um, yeah. We'll see you on the see you in twenty twenty one. Hopefully, it's a <laughs> an improved year for most of us. That would be grand. Okay. Mm, cheers to twenty twenty one.
Cheers, 2021. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Attaboy, Clarence.